0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is
1: Believe. Coming into Los Angeles,
2: bringing in a couple of keys. Don't touch my bags, if you please, Mr. Customs Man. Yeah, there's a guy with a ticket to Mexico. No, he couldn't look much stranger. Good afternoon, this is Chad White and Damien Ferenfort from Free Radicals And this is the 17th edition of Surf Center
1: Yeah, that's it, I can't believe 17, we thought we'd be a lot better with Ron Houstonstam, who, you know, he owns Believe, the network that hosts us He told me, he's like, don't worry, number 1 and 20 are going to be completely different But somehow I think we've gotten worse Yeah, yeah, we're not improving at all (laughs) It's just
2: stiffer, more tongue-tied than ever uh, but, fortunately, we, today we have a guest that, that will probably help make up for a lot of our shortcomings. His name's Michael Oblovich, and he's got a... You know, the film that everybody knows about, that he made, in, and nobody's really ever seen, very few people have seen, is called Sea of Darkness, and that's how I became familiar with him. Um, and and in preparing for this interview, I, I started to realize what an absolute like monster this dude is in terms of what he's done and accomplished. So, um, I mean, just check out his IMDB, but, but you know, the, sh- the shortlist is essentially he was a big part of the No Wave movement in New York City, which is an avant-garde film movement. And you know, the, the people that he was hanging out with, down and kicking around with, would be like Patty Smith and Debbie Harry from Blondie, and and Jim Jarmusch, and, and some other just incredible filmmakers and artists. Um, and he was well, well recognized for being for doing that. And then you know, as his career blossomed, he started to do more you know, larger feature-length films, music videos, uh, commercial spots. And again, like I won't get too much into the detail of, of what Michael's done, but it, he is an absolute beast.
1: Yeah, and I met him, you know, almost ten years ago in Hawaii. He was making a film on Sunny Garcia, and Michael is just an insanely avid surfer. Like he's just, it's what he goes to sleep thinking about, or he wakes up in the morning. So, for him to take his passion of surfing and filmmaking and combine them, I think that was like a culmination of his life's work and his true passion project was yeah. the Sea of Darkness. And then to have it shut down. Yes. Because, and we'll get into that, because there's so many different conspiracies about why that film got shut down. When I'd heard, like, he kept recording after, like, the interviews were over with, like, people like Bob McKnight, and then they said all that stuff, and then their lawyers got involved. Yeah. And so there's all these different stories, which we you'll find out the truth from him, um, and why the film hasn't been seen yet. It's a lot different to what I'd heard and what I expected. Right. But he's a fascinating guy. He's got a lot of amazing not just stories, but a lot of knowledge to share. And at the end of the day, he's just like all of us. He just wants to surf, get barreled, and be stoked.
2: Well, I think, and also, if you think about the the curriculum I just, or the curriculum vitae that I just kind of listed out, you know, who better than to tell surfing story than someone that has had such a wide range of of storytelling ability and, 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 and history, right? And like most people that are this creative, he's
1: extremely polarizing. Yeah. You know, that first like yeah, he's kind of obnoxious when you see when you meet him. Dude, if he's you just surf like, with him, you just yeah, yeah, he's the loudest dude in the water. Right. So him and Chad actually would you know, it would actually be above the legal like decimal sound of it. If that's both right. of them in yeah, the, the water at once. <laughs> yeah, That'd yeah. be like a house party. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, he's a fascinating guy and you know all the best people in the world are the most polarizing and outspoken and that's what he is and he's just no bullshit and I, I had a great time with him. Please excuse the sound; it's terrible. We're in the backyard of his house, wearing masks, with airplanes flying over. So yeah, kind of two.
2: I mean, you know, we're all trying to be a little bit more responsible with this COVID thing, and and I think, um yeah, it was Michael. Michael just asked us politely if we could do it outside, and we, of course, said yes. Um, you'll hear some planes flying over, and you'll you'll also hear the odd ambulance and some other sort of you know ambient sounds. But it's really not that bad. Jim is painting a picture like it's really terrible but it's it's not as bad we've had worse put it that way
1: yeah and this is part one of part two we'll be catching up with michael again this week initially we thought an hour and a half would be enough but it, it wasn't yeah it's just so much good stuff and we were just we were just getting into it so there's a lot more to unpack we'll be recording that probably this weekend or the next few days and
2: yeah part two will drop next week and he does talk he talks a lot so like that's why you know and, and he's kind of like he's it, again we are very similar michael and i in, in that we both have a bit of add and we kind of get all over the place so um, so it took us about the first hour to get to the story about the film To where we started to where we really want to start. so we definitely need another couple hours of them and hopefully um, we can do that really soon so this will you know connect for all you guys. And uh, anyway, we'll let, let Michael take it away. Again, this is sort of like that, the the last podcast we did with the brothers that you they've sort of just we just hit record and see kind of what happens. so you're just gonna come in at uh, right in the beginning of a, a regular old conversation. Hope you enjoy.
1: That was actually one of my questions, and we kind of rolled it into <laughs> yeah. a lot of the stuff that I had yeah. here. When I first met you, I was actually in Hawaii with Sunny. Uh, right. I was in Hawaii, and you, I was—I didn't. Geez, how long ago? It might have been before I moved to the U.S. It was
0: 2011. I think yeah, it might have been so
1: right around then. And I was in Hawaii, and you were rolling around with Sunny, and I was friends with Sunny. Sunny was always great to the South Africans, and you guys were working, starting to work on a film, and you were shooting a lot of stuff. And you know, fast forward to what happened to Sunny, just a bit over a year ago, it must have been like incredibly. Um, heartbreaking for you to see that is there any since then obviously the film that you guys were making kind of fell apart or no, what, what happened then. there so it, we
0: were almost finished the film we were just Sonny and I decided because you know the, the thing about Sonny which was so interesting is he kept evolving it wasn't like I guess with Nathan's film it was easy to it had a beginning and a middle and an end because you know he did that huge fucking toe and wave at Chopu and he just wanted to do something else, right? He didn't want to risk his life like that anymore, but he's very like focused on, 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 the, on, on the narrative of his life. Sonny is just a more free-flow kind of guy, right? And there was always something going on with this guy. Just when you thought, when he came out of prison, and maybe that was the year you met me, was when he was maybe the second Triple Crown or the third Triple Crown when he'd come out of prison, he was winning the triple crown. You remember he surfed against McFanning and uh, and Joel Parkinson in the final at Sunset Beach. Yeah, I remember. Right, and a lot of people thought he won that final. I mean, he was like, you know, it was a, like a, you know, like a pubic hair between him and Parker for, for you know, and we that we we had like eight cameras filming this whole thing. It was paid for by um, uh, what was that company? The, the Fight Company. Uh, Affliction. What? Affliction, right. It was affliction. Sonny was serving for affliction. So we had all this money. And he was going to win. All, all he had to do in true Sunny fashion was make it through one round at the Pipe Masters. And he would have won the Triple Crown. And it was like the biggest celebratory comeback story. It was like the Rocky of surfing.
2: Wasn't that the year that Bead won it and it was like one foot, the, the Pipe Masters? And isn't that the year that... Didn't he kind of go after somebody? Wasn't there? Wasn't that the year that pipe masters it was real small
0: no no it was good no it was, oh, it was, real. Pro- it was proper no, no, no it was Park Parker won Fanning won the world title that year and okay. Parker Parker won the Triple Crown got it and Sonny you know Andy was still alive it was like just magnificent surfing it was like really yeah. just all the best guys are out in the- and um, I-, I remember I-, I got a call from Sean Sean Thompson saying Abi, your guy's gonna win, dude. He we, he was watching the on one broadcast wherever it was of of the of the of the crown. He said, "Dude, he's gonna win." You know, every it was it was really exciting to watch this magnificent beast because that's what Sunny was a magnificent beast. You know, it was like truly one of the hardest charging surfers. I've, I've, I I remember surfing being—I can't say I was surfing with him. I was in the water with him while he was surfing at Makaha, right? And he just a cutback in front of me and that spray was it was like someone throwing a handful of pebbles at you it stung dude it was he had so much power it was like insane amounts of power and he was so on form and he had to do nothing but arrive and 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 the swell was like north you know when back doors like breaking yeah it's that back door direction at pipeline and It was. I remember we we did an interview with Andy and Andy Irons said, "There's no way he's going to lose. I mean, this is perfect for him." And in true Sunny form, his heat starts and he's not there. Oh, now he got caught in traffic or something, right? Dude, the story which I never really wanted to tell because it's another one of those tragic things that just somehow happens to Sunny, you know, is. uh he never wanted me to tell it so i won't tell the story but it was like it was something made him late yeah and i remember years before i was shooting a, a rock video with eric clapton in london and i remember eric clapton said you know Mike, if you're if, if you're not late if you're not early you're late that was eric clapton's thing right you know, while he was trying to hit on my very hot model hair makeup girlfriend that I had the would you, would you mind very much if Bridget Cameron spent the uh weekend with me at my mansion in Surrey? <laughs> I
1: don't know why my dad loves Eric Clapton so much, because that's how my dad lives his life. he <laughs> would rather be three hours early to the airport, I'd rather be ten minutes late. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: no, like Clapton was very much, you know, he was obviously sober by then. He'd gotten off yeah. his heroin trip, and he was super on time. I mean, his weakness were these young model girls. Like, he was... He just couldn't like i was warned that when when we arrived in london i had this beautiful girlfriend and we went to some clubs his,
1: his weakness to the young models it's like it's like that's everyone's weakness yeah, <laughs> <It's yeah. just laughs> whether they're attainable or not for us well for
0: clapton it was pretty much i
1: mean it's he attainable. came up
0: to me and he said hey michael do you mind very much i said bridget's a really beautiful girl i said yeah i know he said would you mind very much if she uh Came and spent the weekend with me in my mansion in Surrey. <laughs> and I said, "Well, frankly, Eric, I do mind." <laughs> yeah,
2: as a matter of fact. But
1: how about when we get back?
0: I don't know what to say. How about when we get back to New York? Here's a number, and you know, that's a whole other story. Oh,
2: Jesus!
1: Yeah. So, how, what is the what is the end of the Sunny film look so, like? What is that? You
2: know, so I'm sure you right, spent so time laid so, it out.
0: All right. So, interrupting as I always do. So, so Sunny, that that was going to be the first the first version of it. Was he came out of prison? We'd interviewed everybody, people who were in prison with him, you know, his lawyers, the whole story, guys who drove him to prison. Um, The whole we had the whole setup, and then his whole early life, and everybody on Makaha. It was a beautiful film, and now he was going to win the triple crown, and um, Affliction were paying for him, and it was going to be this amazing, uh, and you know, it was going to be the Sunny Garcia film, and we would have gotten it onto HBO. It was a two thousand ten or eleven. Yeah. It was after of Dog, it was a really good time. There weren't any other surfing movies like that. And, uh, of course, he didn't uh, show up. But when he got to his, lead, his, his heat, he was like five or ten minutes late, and he had a huge argument with Randy Rarick on the beach. So that's what we got on film. Instead of getting Sonny winning, we have him arguing with Randy Rarick on the beach. And then afterwards, he walks away, and the next day he says on film, I really wanted to knock his fucking lights out, but I didn't want to go back to prison. Right? And I'm going, yeah, well, you wanted to knock his lights out, but you were late. You know? Right. So, well, you know, And that's the story. Sonny was just this, he's this mess of contradictions, you know? Uh, uh, and, and you understand that in the film. The film is about where he came from and his, his, his upbringing, and that, he came from a really hard.
2: But it's the, same.
1: it's the same as these, like, football players in the U.K. and all around and from Brazil and that. These guys, even in so much, a little bit in the U.S. to a degree, these guys come from nothing. All nothing. of a sudden, they're like superstars and they're making all this money and everybody wants to hang out with them. They're still just that same person they grew up in. And that's exactly,
0: you hit the nail on the head. I mean, Sonny was, you know, like you said, if he hadn't have had surfing, he would have been addicted to drugs or been in prison a lot earlier. They don't have the equipment to deal with what they've got. No. They you know, the lot that they've been dealt in life. And they have to put so much, you don't just get good at at a sport, right? Especially when you don't have, you know, the wherewithal to train the conventional way, so you're doing it on your own kind of thing. Yeah. And you're surfing, you know, he was surfing whatever, as many daylight hours a day. His stepfather was very abusive to him and didn't want him to surf because he saw him getting joy and progressing and surfing and there was that kind of... Jealousy. Comp- jealousy, Freudian competition yeah. thing between them, Oedipal Complex. So the whole... I mean, Sonny had the whole... All the baggage and he was molested by... Uh, he's, he talks about this in the film. He was molested by this... Um, should we have this All
1: those private jets flying in and
0: out. Well, in, in Van Nuys Airport. Yeah. Van Nuys. Yeah. yeah. Um, he was, he was molested by one of his earliest sponsors, who was like some rich guy who, who owned a hotel in Makaha, which is now an apartment, one of apartment buildings there. And, uh, and that was the guy who was paying for his competitive life. So he, he really had some- Major. Illhead, major baggage, major baggage. Oh and a sense of unworthiness, right? And I think that was his problem. The more successful he got, the less worthy he felt of being successful. Imposter
2: syndrome, or exactly whatever they right. call it.
0: Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. And uh, and and so he, there was always this raging conflict, and then there was no psychological or educational tools to deal with
1: it. Well, yeah, his because I got to spend a lot of time with Sonny just in Hawaii. Always, like like I said, he always seemed to really treat the Africans well, and Likes I think it's because yeah, was. he really did. I think he, there was this kind of mutual respect about, it, and a lot of the, lot of the South Africans, you know, from your generation before me were they grew up rough and tough Durban was hardcore back in the day um but Sonny he was always so like open and honest about his depression and and what he had going on and and his like tool with it which I always like felt was so heartbreaking at the end when when it happened was he was like like he would go run 10 miles he's like how can I run this how can I get this feeling out of me like he was actively trying to combat and get rid of it and find that balance it was like that was the constraint that he was constantly always up against he was cycling a lot he, he loved to ride his bike and i think that's very credible and laudable
0: and yeah, i think that's too. what motivates a lot of people i mean yeah. i mean i would be the most depressed human being i look at my racing bikes they're sitting right there i ride that fucking bike 10 15 miles every fucking day you know and i don't ride it to lose weight as you can tell because i don't i ride it to fucking feel okay and Sonny yeah. had that multiplied and then when you think that he was in his time the most highest paid athlete for a while before slater he was earning a lot of money and he had money stashed away overseas and the whole thing and the whole deck of cards collapsed around him he was married to uh, joey cabell's daughter and joey cabell is well not only one of the wealthiest guys in surfing but really one of the great innovators i mean it was like he he'd got the queen of surfing but by his own admission, they, you know, it was the late 90s, early, uh, early 2000s, they were doing masses of blow, and, you know, anybody who does masses of blows, especially if you've got a lot of underlying problems, it's mm-hmm. a really good way to trigger all that shit. Yeah. And, and that was the problem. So we addressed all this in the film, and it was all going to end heroically with him winning the Triple Crown again. And in true sunny fashion is Michael Thompson, another great legendary guy who we can talk about later, um, as Michael Thompson said to me, in true sunny fashion, he didn't show up.
1: Right? That sounds exactly like MT. I could hear him saying it.
0: I could do, I could do his <laughs> yeah. voice. And uh, <laughs> and in uh, true sunny fashion, <laughs> uh, he didn't show up. <laughs> that it's is up. so spot on. It's so good. I loved I loved my time with him too. So-
1: while we're on that subject, I mean I got a text last Wednesday, MT's dead. I I knew he was sick and that he's I, not dead. I no he's not. And the, so it's been going around I think somebody spread it on Facebook and then people were messaging me. He's not dead right now, he's just he's in a bad way. Obviously he's stage four cancer, but he's not dead. If anyone's listening and you think he's dead, he's not. He's it's M T, he'll live forever. He's Keith Richards. Dude, M-
0: MT is the Keith Richards of surfing. I mean he is and let me tell you, he surfs he surfs Pipe, backhand Pipe, as well as Keith Richards played the guitar. To watch Michael Thompson at Pipe in the day, backhand was, to me, a sight to behold. I always loved his surfing. He was like a, like the bull, you know, the charger, right? I just liked, I liked everything about him. And then that fucking, um, the gotcha design. And the, like, you know, he was hanging out in New York when we were staying. I'd, I'd moved to New York with my friend Anton Figg, the drummer from the David Letterman Show we grew up in Seapoint together, right? So we used to surf Clifton and all those breaks back in the day, we went back to the 60s. Um, and he, we were both at, car, at university in New York and we were staying in, I was at Columbia University and he just graduated the New England Conservatory and we were staying in New York. And Mike Thompson was the first great South African Titan. That we, I mean this guy. Yeah was transforming the world
1: with gotcha. I mean, it wasn't just like a surfing No, He came over here and opened up the floodgates. Like for the Africans to come in and be so dominant in the surf industry.
0: But it was what I'm trying to say. He had transcended the surf. Yeah, he had. In New
2: York. And South Africa, really. Wait, in New York in
0: the 70s and early 80s, he was like one of the... Designers of that whole new wave look, you know, with the with the weird ha- punk hairstyle and the bright colours. Have you ever seen his book?
1: I've got it. I've got one signed to Damien from
2: MT, Awesome yeah.
0: books, right? He's uh, he a great talent. But anyway, so he had his commentary on Sonny, which was spot on, of course. And and then after that, Sonny was very depressed when he didn't when he didn't show up. Obviously, then he started getting down himself. And then we we kept. I kept going with the movie, right? But I didn't know where it was going to go next. I know because I mean it was such a natural ending, and uh, he was just—I—I I feel he was on a downward spiral after that. You know, he was like really—you know—affliction dropped him. Um, you know, he was—it was—it was tough to watch a guy who come up from the ashes of life, like, and—and and then like a phoenix had resurrected himself and then again but i always got the feeling that with Sonny, if he had the right people around him he would well, uh, he, he would resurrect himself again i felt something.
1: like he was always around people that took advantage of him he was such a what and people don't know this about Sonny because they'd always see like you'd see what did that surf show they had and he's aggro you'd see him fighting on the beach almost killing neko one of these things but he was just a big teddy bear he like i'd never seen he was just a big kid at the he end of had it. so
0: much love in his heart, this guy. And, and and you see that in his son Stone. If you hang out with Stone's eyes, it's he has the same eyes as Sonny, those watery Sonny's eyes, he had that like infinite sadness in his eyes, this watery, like teddy bear eyes. But you know, but he had a, like, you know, like I guess a classic bipolar disorder, right? Yeah. And he just didn't need the wrong trigger in his life. And so we'd come to the point where we figured out, one day he told me out of the blue. Um. what's his name Aquaman what's
2: oh Aquaman? yeah uh, Jason Momoa
0: Jason Momoa right he said you know Mike I grew up with Jason Momoa's brother I know Jason really well right why don't we get Jason to just talk about growing up in Macau, and we'll end the film that way and I said fucking awesome Sonny That's, you know so by then Sonny had been Inaugurated into the Hawaii Hall of Fame of Sports. They inaugurated him and Randy Rarick at the same ceremony. That's
1: the the irony, right?
0: Yeah, I'd put it all together. I had an ending of sorts, right? But if I could have Jason Momoa there, Mm. that would be an amazing ending to bring it all together. And by then he'd met this woman that he'd hooked up with, uh, Lori, whatever her name is. And uh, he was hanging out in Oregon, which is where she, you know, she was uh, one of the. Found Early. the engineers Of Google So yep. he got a lot of money So things were Kind of better for him He was like You know Surfing a lot Going with her To, to, to Fiji and, and, and Chopu And wherever He was going to Morocco He'd get a bunch of trips So there was a whole new It was like I said The Phoenix was coming back From the ashes But I think there was like A lot of friction Between them And she's a Harvard Educated woman And here's mm-hmm. A guy a, a Hawaiian guy Filled with mana And like yeah you know like a tough hawaiian who who was ultimately could not play second fiddle to a woman no matter how smart or rich she was i think there was there's some internal uh, you know tension there Mm. and uh two
1: alpha males essentially right she
0: was like yeah she was like i mean she kind of (laughs) look i'm not gonna pass judgment but there was i think two alpha males There was definitely two bulls in the china shop yeah that's right right there and uh and you know inevitably that friction you know causes heat, right? And just one night, it just blew up. And, uh, you know, I, I in many ways, so did the movie, right? Because yeah. we were ready to finish it. Right Now, I know Sonny would like nothing more than me to finish the movie, right? It's a hard call on the finish. I know exactly what to it do. It's, um, I probably would have finished shooting it right now uh, because I, I, when I was back in Hawaii this last um, fall and winter doing uh, this, these commercials that I was doing, you know, I was hanging out with Rusty all the time. And Rusty, because he was working with me, Kielan, who was telling me about the last few weeks of Sonny's life. Sonny had been calling him a lot for advice. So was uh, Mark Ryan. I don't know if you know Mark Ryan. No. Mark Ryan's uh, um, uh, a dirt bike racer. You know, like, Sonny was a, really liked to race... You know, motorbikes right dirt bikes and Mark was a very and a mutual friend of Sonny's and Nathan's actually so I knew Mark through Nathan and Sonny had been calling them and and, and I think he was really ready to move back to Hawaii I think that would have been a great move for him you know to get you know he would been in Oregon we were gonna get Jason Momoa who was also living in Oregon so that was all set up we'd spoken to him on the phone everything was good and then this it just exploded one night and uh, the thing about depression is you can go as low as low as the situation is going to take you. you are going to go. You know? Oh, yeah. There's no bottom. There's, There's no floor. There's no bottom. There's no floor. It's, yeah. like, it's like Kurt Cobain. Yeah,
2: know? exactly. And, and well, like I, a lot of these guys. You know? And
0: especially when they're hanging out up in Oregon or, you know, we're in Seattle. Where did Kurt Cobain we, blow his head off? You know, that yeah. area is kind of, I mean, it might have, I mean, Sonny kept telling me how good the waves were there.
1: Yeah, but it's cold. Sonny's not serving but cold water freezing like that. Yeah. Cold he hated he said, the cold, I remember. And he said
0: the locals were really gnarly. Oh, you're... You know, he got a lot of this, oh, you're Sonny Garcia. Yeah. You know what it reminded me of? I worked with Steven Seagal. I did a couple of movies with Seagal. Wherever we went with Steven Seagal, everybody wanted to fight with him. Yep. Every, just because he was Steven Seagal. Yeah, so We, had, we yeah. had to have fucking bodyguards. Just shot at the king. Exactly. <laughs> Sonny was the same kind of thing in the water. Yeah. There were always going to be guys that wanted to... You know, pick on him and let's see. You're the tough Sonny Garcia,
1: and that wears you down, especially when you're, you know, in your forties. Just get tired of it. Like that was uh, your twenties and thirties when you're a pro. Now you're just a dad, and you want to surf and be happy.
0: He just wanted to be stable, and I think he he, 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 he found stability. I'm giving you moments so you can edit it. Yeah, yeah, I know. No,
2: just keep going.
0: Yeah, he found he found stability with Lori for sure. Financially, I think it took a lot of pressure off him. And I just think they were living in the wrong place, yeah, you know, and I don't know whether they were living in that place because she owned that house there, and she felt she was able to control the situation better. i don't know
2: but also you know when you, sometimes when you, when you when you contend toward bad things and you're, and you're at home you, you know or at home for him being Hawaii, you know, maybe maybe it's just easier to access, or maybe there's just some things that you want to get away from. He might have even wanted to get away from that, right? Like, in, in, to some degree.
0: I, I think at first, no, at first yeah. he was very happy to be there, right? But then it was turning into, you know, months, and then it was a year, and then mm. it was another year, and then the winter was coming, and and then the friction started happening. You know, yeah. what I mean? he didn't have a great track record with wives. I mean, he's had the Lori would have been his fourth. Or fifth long-term relationship, you know that they they weren't they didn't last too long, and you know and here he was suddenly in a very very a divisive power struggle with her, trapped in in Oregon in the and middle did, of winter.
2: Do you capture any of that on the film, or is that was that just sort of in past tense? Is it something that
0: uh, I didn't look? I mean, you know, it's something I spoke to Kelly Slater about. And Kelly Slater. Kelly said to me, you know, man. I think the real movie about Sunny is going to be how Laurie, who's so tapped into all this modern science and Google stuff, and she has the money, is going to bring him back from from his uh, his tragedy and and get his brain working again and resurrect him. Yeah. And I said I, I said to um, to Kelly, I, I, the, the story of Sonny is a celebration of his life. Yeah. Of what he did, right? Uh you know, Rusty Kialana said to me that um, in the ancient Hawaiian tradition, when a warrior got killed, they would um, open up his chest and they would eat his organs. They would eat his heart, they would eat his liver, they would eat, eat whatever organs, you know, and the reason why they did that was to to take the mana, the spirit of the warrior, and have it pass on to future generations. And when I described... Sonny's injuries to uh, a doctor friend of mine, a cardiologist friend of mine, and Rusty, whose wife works in, uh, in anesthesiology medicine as a, as, a, as a nurse, said the same thing, that they should have just let him pass. And because immediately, right away, you can transplant the organs mm-hmm. into, into someone else. And it's very much the concept of mana. You know, yeah you keep that spirit going but you know this is you know the people have different opinions cali cali seemed to think that there was stuff things you could do to resurrect
1: yeah in my opinion and i which is a very uneducated opinion and especially in this it's most most of the time my opinions are educated. this time even more so uh, in the medical world i just there's no coming back from that that kind of thing i've saw the photos and a bit that i do know about it and how he is it's it's honorable and it's cool, and she wants to do that. But I think he would rather be.
0: Well, that's what everybody on the North Shore wants. Yeah. Is is to let him too late him now though? The minute he opened well his eyes, it was too late. You could bring him, you know, at least bring him back there and let him. Yeah. The you know, Vato So, days. so, um, so w- where would I go with the movie? I would just have um, Rusty and Mark and just Jason talk,
1: talk about. I think it's still a great ending with Jason talking about. Yeah yeah The West Side so, and you can be in you know they can be no, in but I could have the
0: boys talking about the last week, the calls he made and Jason you know they'd all do it everybody wants yeah. to do it I mean they really want this movie made as because it, it is a yeah. movie about The West Side um, so it's, uh, it's just you know I, I have to everybody has to deal with Laurie you know Laurie's very wealthy and she's very um, assertive in her point of view and she was the last person with him, you know, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of, of, of different, um, cooks in this particular, part I feel like right
1: so you've obviously you've been attracted to real stories that, throughout your whole career and, and especially the the part of your career that I already know the surf side. You've been met with these this kind of friction everywhere you go, oh, right? Like I remember you telling me the Nathan film was ready a few years ago, and then you know they, you know, they was signing and stuff. <laughs> no, they always want to kill me at some. They wanted to kill you, right? Um, if I'm not getting death threats, I'm not making a good. You're movie. probably so, fucking right. up, right? Yeah. So, so I yeah, know the sony movie's good. Right? So let's so let's talk about a film that would be. <laughs> Probably your greatest hit if anyone could watch it, The Sea of Darkness. Right, which there was no shortage of death threats there either. So The Sea of Darkness was a film that you made about, and you can still you can still watch the trailer online. It's obviously didn't get taken down, but um, it's a film about surfing and how the industry started off drugs and how surfers were just using the drug trade to basically keep funneling their, their love for surfing and being able to travel and, and please elaborate. Well, I think it's a film about ecotourism, right? The
0: beginnings of ecotourism. It was before, before Mike Boyan went on his adventures, right? And discovered G-Land and Cloud Nine uh, in, uh, in the Philippines and Vanuatu and in the, the South Pacific. There, there, was, there was surf travel, right? But nobody had this idea to set up these surfing camps, right, right? And that was truly his innovation. The first camp at G-Land was the first actual surf camp. Prior to that, I guess they arrived in, in a place like uh, Bali and people rented houses and they surf every day. And they did what they did, you know. They were definitely leaning towards the kind of enterprise that maintained uh, G-Land as a surf camp. But in G-Land, they had the opportunity. And in those days, it was not a three-hour speedboat yeah. ride. It was more like a 15-hour uh, boat ride. And in talking about Julian, the person you guys need to interview one time is, is Shirley Rogers. Shirley Rogers was the um, girlfriend of Eddie Rothman during that period, and she's the first female surf action sports photographer. Right? She was... this great photographs of her from, like, 1969, 70 in her little bikini with her long uh, cannon... 1500 mil lens at Pipeline she was born in a I'm line I'd love road. to talk to her yeah she's fantastic and she a lot of my early stories of g I know from her because she was there with Eddie and with Boyan right before Martin or anybody got there and it was an excruciating boat ride to get there back in the day right you either had to take this very dangerous uh, motorbike ride through the jungle and you know and then or you took the boat ride and got smashed around in the seas and ended up vomiting and you, you know how hard it is to well, imagine 2000
1: that. I went where to and I went and, and it was, was naughty, right? and it was naughty. it was 12 hours overnight exactly. like exactly on, on an indoor boat like not like a nice <laughs> you know one these little laying on your board bag on your boards like it's, it stinks just stinks like oil puking,
0: the time, yeah. yeah so, so that's how the original the original rides are so boy i had this great idea well now we're here let's build a camp and then we got to think of how we can get Elite surface to pay a thousand dollars a week or whatever they were going to pay to stay at this camp, and we need to think about other ways to keep this camp financed. But we're like miles away from anybody. There's no internet back in in the late seventies, right, early eighties. So it was very easy to maintain these kind of surreptitious enterprises, and that's what they did. And you know, a lot of things coalesced in that elite group of surfers. At that time, there was Jeff Hackman, was Bob McKnight, Bruce Raymond,
1: it was bob was was bob an elite surfer well no but he was in that group he was hanging right yeah
0: well the, neither was boy of an elite surfer you know yeah but he was in the group of those guys you know but he would be like be like me hanging out with you you yeah. know there were the guys that paddled out in at freddy's and or that they surfed what's it like speed like inside of speedies there oh uh, the, yeah what was, was it
1: called um i remember money it, trees yeah. money trees no yeah. money
0: Trees. the top no, speedies there's kongs
1: money Trees, yeah. speedies and then there's it. the
0: other one down there
1: like swimming pools or something like that. Some yeah. So yeah, well, we, sort of we'd, we'd surf.
0: yeah that's right So so but then, you know, we'd still be hanging out there because yeah. there was only like 15 of us there anyway right and everybody's plotting their ideas and, and you know then they had Peter McCabe and Lopez there you know Peter McCabe both are fantastic board builders I mean Peter certainly is like a good glosser a, hand, a hands on guy all the way through so you know for Peter to hollow out a surfboard and fill it up with some substance and move it on a boat from G-Land to, to, you know, Hawaii or whatever. It wasn't that hard. There were a lot of guys fl- coming in on boats. You know, it was... When I'd heard about G-Land, really, the real info I got on G-Land was in the... Because I was already living in New York. In 76, I moved to New York. right? So I'd been a like a South African surfer. I was like barely twenty, twenty-one maybe, and I'd spent all my teenage years surfing you know, empty Vic Bay and Ilans Bay and Jay Bay and I was born in Seapoint, right? It's Queens Beach. I was the first guy to ever surf Queens Beach and see all these breaks. You know, Olifan Boss, Plot Boom, Corm Outer, you name them. I surfed every one of those breaks. Three, six, fives. They were all my waves, right? There were a few of us. So I was pretty surfed out, like I was in you know, and I was a real hippie, you know, long hair like I am now. And uh, and, and and totally haruk all the time. And I was, like, really stoked to be in New York because it was like the punk rock scene was happening. And it was music was going off. And for the first year in New York, I don't think I even left the city. Right? I was definitely not thinking about surfing at that point in time. And then, like, me and Anton Fig, the drummer from The Letterman Show, who was there with me, we... Somehow we got a vibe but this. We had no idea that there was surf there. We'd, we'd heard of surf on the East Coast, like Corky Carroll and Claude Codgins. We'd heard of those guys. And Mike Tabling was down at J Bay. But in general, it wasn't... When you came from South Africa, surfing on the East Coast of America was not something you were really thinking about. Right? But anyway, we took a drive. I remember we somehow we got a car from somewhere and we drove out to Long Island and we went all the way to Montauk. And... By some miracle there was a swell. And there's this like weird uh, left called Ditch Plains. It's like oh,
1: so Ditch Plains, you know, yeah.
0: Kind of and, and it was breaking. It was pretty good. It was like hand to high. I could still remember the day, I could see it. I remember I somehow from somewhere Got a longboard. It was a light blue single foot. I could still see it in my pocket. I don't know where. I must have rented it from a surf shop or something. I had had not ridden a longboard since the 60s, but anyway, it was perfect for it. And I went out and surfed, and I was, you know, super skinny from all the drugs that I'd been doing in New York right, for the year. Great for surfing. I was feeling just right, just right for yeah. surfing, dude. Yeah. I was like, I was fucking tearing the pot out there, and I got to meet this guy, Tony Caramanico who's become a really close friend of mine who's a fantastic long island surfer and to this day tony must be 70 now he's still rips he's a good friend of herbie fletcher's and tony's best friend was ricky rasmussen and tony was saying where do you come from and you surf good and all that so, oh, i'm from south africa and we were all buddies and at that point in time ricky it was you know 76 77 ricky rasmussen was pretty heavy the dope you know, he wasn't the Ricky Rasmussen of, like, a few years before that, where he was, you know, the U.S. champion and considered mm-hmm. one of the best guys ever at pipe. And he said, really, he could still surf, for sure. But he was definitely, seemed like he was more into heroin cocaine than surfing. But he's also telling us about G-Land. And, you know, I said, well, we could never go to Indo because we were South Africans. And we, we didn't have, a, you know, it was during apartheid. We were banned because... Malaysian people, and so there were very few places you could go to with a South African passport in the 70s, right? The only places you could travel to were America and England, Germany, France. You know the colonizing country yeah right? all the places yeah. shit waves yeah the, the white <laughs> exactly. the, the, the white
2: supremacist countries well, yeah.
0: well you could go to hawaii you see so there's lots yeah. of all well, the south africans ended up in hawaii right that's yeah. why they're all there they went, went. you got australia of course there that they loved the colonialists yeah australia. yeah anybody that <laughs>
2: subjugated other people exactly
0: perfect for us yeah. so, so, but you could have got a party so so we were um you know, I gotta hear all these great stories. I mean I mean, my friends were Alan Weisbecker who went on to write that book Zen and Zero. No, Less than Zero. What's it no what's the book called? Them. Um, Ka- Captain, Captain Zero. Zero. So Captain Zero right? yeah. And uh and another guy called Rusty Drum, was really his name, like an old yeah, Waspy guy who was a fantastic fisherman and surfer, who was the editor of the Montauk Times. And Ricky Rasmussen and Tony Caramanico, they all grew up together, these guys. And Tony and Ricky had been to G-Land a bunch of times. Tony was there with, when they did when Dan Merkel did the filming. So I really had a knew a lot about Boyan, you know, from yeah. hanging out with these guys. I knew a lot about this, the stories of G-Land. and I was a goofy foot, and it just always looked to me like the most amazing way on earth, right? Especially when you're young. So so my fire was lit really early on, and then it was something in the back of my head, you know, when I when I. When I came, I came to live out here eventually in the 2000s, after my, uh, my first marriage fell apart, you know, in true New York rock and roll style, went up in flames. And, uh, you know, by then I was way back into surfing anyway, you know, already in the early 80s. You know, it was, it was, I'd been coming and going from L.A. for years because I was doing movies and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd seen there was a surfer magazine uh, issue with Kelly on the cover she, at the Turks and Caicos. It was it was in the, it was on the boat on Martin's boat, the um Trader One, right? They didn't say where the brakes were, right? And there was a picture of Kelly going off the lip on this fucking great right, and there was a you know there were some great barrels, just some really good waves out there, right? So. I'm, going there to, I'm really not going there to meet anybody, I'm going there to do my movie, but on the plane, lo and behold, sitting next to me is this old gray-haired dude, and it's Martin Daly. I had no idea who he was. I mean, I'd read about him, but know, you, when you look at him, he doesn't exactly look like your epitome of what a surfer looks like right? at right. all. Right? Anyway, we were drinking scotch and getting, you know, just talking, I didn't know who he was, and, and I, he had his computer open, and there were all these surfing photographs in the computer. I went, whoa, dude! What's all this? And he said, Oh, that's me and my boat, mate. Yeah. And anyway, I, t- I said, hey, You're that guy from the boat, right? He said, Yeah, that's me. It ended up, he invited me to um, to uh, we, we were we, the, the island. The main island is called Providenciales, where the planes fly in, and where we were filming was Grand Turk, which is like way out at the end of the archipelago, which yeah. is the, just where the Atlantic Ocean. The whatever the Caribbean, Caribbean Sea, so it's a it's really out there. So it gets a lot of waves, like storm waves, right? It was a trip, dude. It was like I, I hadn't engaged with professional surfing. It's, I never really had engaged with professional surfing ever. I mean, I came from that hippie, you know the the the, we yeah. the, the soul surfing more hippie. underground thing, yeah. Yeah, like Desi Sawyer and me and, and Gunter Rahm. Those are my boys from Cape Town. You know, we uh, we used to surf fucking. Vic Bay and Jay Bay and, you know, make underground surfboards. Clive Barber, do you remember? Of course, yeah. It's Clive Barber, there's my guy. There, that was my first introduction to uh, putting uh, marijuana inside
1: surfboards in the early 70s. Was because Gavin Rudolph, when did he get bust? He had won the Smirnoff Cup uh, and then a, year, a few months later he had got bust moving. Acid, yeah. Yeah, and was and he was like of one that, of the Jerry. best. Like, I mean, Gavin was, he'd Scored won the great. Smirnoff at 17, he, he, which is fantastic surfer yeah I mean still is incredible out there but yeah. he was on his way to be one of like a Sean Thompson style uh, he, stuff he,
0: he, he was like yeah he nudged nobody had, he was, was, was the he, first was South African to win was it LSD or was it weed LSD okay so what happened was the boys soon back in those days there wasn't grass everywhere in the world yeah. and we had Durban poison Durban poison to this day I have some in my room here <laughs> no, I saw
1: Tommy Chung uh, Best He's growing. my friend's uncle, and he was like asking about Devon Poison. No <laughs> shit, that's, that's world famous. Like, Maui, poison Maui, was poison.
0: so famous in uh, in the sixties and seventies. It was tie stick. Yeah, there was Devon Poison and Maui Wowie, right? Yeah, and Poison was like like a real sense of me. It came in these thin little pencils. Right? We used, to buy, we used to go up to Chatsworth in, uh, the, in outside Durban there. You know, the big Yeah, of village, course. And we'd buy sacks of that shit. Right? So, they would they would get parcel, And there was also Swazi Gold and Malawi yeah. cob. Malawi cob was and another great...
1: Gold, yeah. yeah,
0: Malawi cob was another great cross. They used to bury it underground in a cob and then it got this incredible potency. So, we had a lot of very good varieties back in the day when you didn't get mass Produced hydroponic weed the way you do now, and um, Clive Barber was a fantastic surfboard builder, uh, and uh, he was very good at hollowing out surfboards and filling them up with uh, with weed and sending them overseas, and then boards would come back with acid. And somehow in the middle of all that, I think it was Gavin Rudolph who got a board that was filled with acid or something. And
1: you know, I didn't really know Sharon and all those. Yeah, because yeah. Glenn Darcy and all them, they had yeah, some not crazy not. stuff going on, too. Uh, this was before Chiron. See, before that.
0: So, so, I mean, my... Just to go back even further, my first time at J-Bay, I think it was 68, was when Wayne Lynch and Nat Young and Terry Fitzgerald were there. They'd come for the Gunston 500. Um, it was 68 or 69. I think it's was 68. We should check it. But it was fucking huge swell in Durban, probably kind of like what's happening right now. It was massive, like Bay of Plenty, which is where everybody used to surf in those days, was just closing out, right? And we had driven up from Cape Town and my friend Hershey was like four years older than me, right? He was 18, so he had a call So it was Michael Doner, one of those guys. So we drove up, we drove up there and while we were there, we scored all this all these poisons at Chatsworth and so we knew we were going to be very popular among the surf crowd right and we were hanging out with with Nat Young and Wade Lynch who was my idol because he was the best goofy footer I've ever seen in my life right and they all said well mate you know we're getting stunned well mate I think we're going down to Jay Bay fuck this competition because that's how people were in those days they weren't really into the comedy it was the hippie era so, of course, the little groupies with our big thing of Durban Poison. We followed the Australian guys down to Jay Bay. We drove through the trance sky, through the night. We came, I'll never forget driving into Jay Bay. It was down this little dirt road. It was like fucking nuts. There were no houses. There was nothing. It was just like this little, like, all those houses on the hill, they were just like copies, you know. Yeah, there and was really, like one hotel. There was one hotel, and yeah. dude, they weren't putting any Long Aracha hippies in that It was hotel. like the version
1: of what like, Ilan's play would be now.
0: It's like Ilan's, well, you should have seen what Ilan's looked yeah, like back in that, those yeah. days, dude. There was another whole I can tell you that story, too. Anyway, so we arrived there. I remember we slept under the car. Because it was so fucking cold. The wind was howling. We couldn't all fit inside the car. So I remember I slept in a sleeping bag under the car. But we had all our fucking poisons there. And there, the next morning, I saw surf like I'd never seen in my life. It was fucking huge. You know when Supers is huge. And there's gr- like that green color with us howling offshore. And just lines all the way to the fucking horizon. Nothing like it. There's nothing like it. And fucking... I remember trying to paddle out there, and just, fuck, just getting destroyed. Like, like, I could not get out. I, you know, if I was like, I liked it, I could not get out. But I'm sitting on the hill there and we're watching Wayne Lynch. And, uh, Wayne Lynch had a, it was in of the early short boards. He had a little, like, disc-shaped yellow board, a single fin with a red fin, it's a yellow board, and he was doing fucking helicopter 360s backhand. I, I can still, to this day, he would go up, Spin around, do a 360, drop back into the wave, and do that incredible backhand turn, pull. Sean, who was a lighter then, too, thinks his dad has Super 8 film of it somewhere.
1: Can you imagine getting your hands on that?
0: I know that I had a camera there. But yeah. I can't find the fucking... I've looked so many times for that film. Too, too was, much of that Durban poison. I was so... <laughs> <laughs> I was so, But it gets better, right? So, and Terry Fitzgerald, by the way, was the most amazing surfer I'd ever seen. He would, like, do these... I guess we call them floaters now, right? He would go... I remember saying to my friends, he would go around the back of the wave and then come back down into the wave. It was insane. Nobody had no done shit like this, right? And Anthony van de had this big jar of orange juice, Right? because Ant was the first guy living at J. He was the very first guy. This is like in the 60s, right? And everybody was sitting around there smoking our poisons, so we were very, like, in demand. And then they were drinking the orange juice, right? And I I had promised myself, because this is the 60s, that I wouldn't do acid until I graduated high school. I was always very conscious about like I had to get university degrees and I was always about that, protecting my intellect. Like, you know, I made my adjudications. I figured the stuff the medical uh, industry was writing about marijuana was bullshit, that it wasn't going to affect my brain, that I was doing just fine on marijuana. But I felt like LSD was a bit of a trap, you know, so I didn't partake in the orange juice. I'm, I'm
2: starting to think I know the orange juice. Yeah, yeah it's that, it was that <laughs> orange
0: juice. It was like straight there the boards were the, the orange juice was flowing everybody had acid right all those guys it was still one of the most
1: amazing surf so, experiences so fast forward back to so pulling it back to sea of darkness right and that was it, my initiation into this world yeah and then right. g-land and then g-land and you, had you gone there or you you so you met martin daly on this trip because martin I'd daly met, produced the film with you yeah so i met martin in uh, in turks and Caicos
0: on the on the plane we i stayed with him all night we carried on drinking and he and you know everybody was sunny miller all the boys were there right and everybody was telling us stories about the mental wires and the boat and But then i was an accomplished filmmaker i had a bunch of seagal movies which happened to be movies that they had on the indies trader so they'd seen some of my movies so they were kind of into it you know And i said you know this will make a fantastic documentary and Martin's going, oh yeah, everybody tells me it'll be a documentary. I said, no, no, Martin, I just did this cigar movie with these guys in LA. I made it a shitload of money. They'll give me money to do whatever I want, especially I'd only need a couple of hundred grand. Let's make a deal. I'll come, I'll come to you, meet you in uh, in Indo, right? And he came back, he stayed with me at my place. Like I said, we're sort of looping all the way back around the story with Sean. Now Sean got, got out there. And At that point, Martin wasn't paying for the movie. I had the money set up with these guys. And um, Martin, the whole Quicksilver thing had fallen through. He'd been staying on my couch. We'd all been partying like crazy in fucking Venice, you know, like we did back in the day. And uh, I said, Martin, I'm going to be able to get this money. And that's when he said, if you can bring, if you can get Sean to come with you, then I'll spot you guys on the boat. Martin really wanted to see Sean surfing. Then, you know, he was his hero. And truth be told, he was right. Watching Sean attack those waves all over the mantle eyes, Sean brought, he had a blue single fin with him, a replica of Spy, the Spider-Murphy's favorite single yeah, he, fin. Geordie
1: just got one made from, Bush, uh, Spider made for Geordie, a replica of Sean's original. Sean
0: had that board. I filmed mm. him surfing that board he was ripping and he was already he must have been in his like 50 you know, maybe yeah like i was about 50 late 40s so early yeah. 50s was right? the same age as me like one wanted to we were in our 50s yeah it was like 10 years ago like i'm 68 now right he was absolutely ripping it was amazing and but what was more amazing my son was 18 right so he was on the boat with us and here was this guy who just lost his son and it was something incomprehensible i don't know if it wasn't how his son died it was his, that his son had died yeah he'd lost his son and and this was a man like sean's a real man's man and a really cultivated human being oh yeah and yeah. someone who has a very clear vision of of how life should be led mm-hmm. and and he was expecting and i think he would have had great things from matthew it was it was a wonderful boy we'd spent um uh, passover seders with them and so, you know, I, we weren't like super close, but we'd hung out with them. And my son was like maybe two years older than Matthew. T- to watch Sean every night, he was in tears on that boat. It was extraordinary to watch, you know. It was, it was like, it was a real experience. It was the real story of Sea of Darkness. was really watching Sean's spirit and watching this guy deal with what he had to deal with and come to terms with it. In a way, in many ways, it was the the antithesis, the opposite of the Sonny Garcia story. It was just a different, you know. Sean had the um, luxury of having had a really good education, coming from a stable upbringing. So he was more equipped psychologically and intellectually to deal with grief and tragedy than, say, like someone like Sonny, who just, you know, came from a very hard scrabble life. But even so, it was it was an absolute act uh, example of courage, real courage to see that. And I remember, my son was out there. Some you know we were surfing so much, all of us were just getting back into it. And It was like amazing. And you know, my son sometimes would just go out and surf by himself. There was never wherever Martin went, there was never anybody there. We would always arrive perfectly timed with the swell, about a day before any other boats got there. It was perfect. I mean, the guy has that place so wired.
2: mental-wise,
0: right? It was just amazing. I remember one day, Orson was out there surfing, and it was like some reef break in the middle of nowhere, and there was like a clump of trees, you know, an island there, but there was really nothing around it, and he snapped his leash, and dude, it was like a rip, and he was swimming, and there. and suddenly you heard Sean go, hey, someone get a jet ski! Orson's leash broke! It was like Sean had been watching... He, he he didn't want another tragedy. You could feel it was like yeah. he was so protective of my son on that trip. He was always watching him, making sure because you know it's naughty surf out there, right? It was it was it was incredible, and and that was the first time I think Sean had surfed since since Matthew died on that trip, and it was a great bonding experience for for him and me. Those of us who were on the ship, we had no idea that the video, the film we were making, was going to turn into this. I mean, I had, I mean, I tell you what, the first, the very first shot that I filmed of that, of Sea of Darkness, was Martin looking into the camera and saying, he says this date and he says, uh, Mike Boyum offered me $40,000 to smuggle four tons of hashish from this one island to this other island. And I, you know, I thought about it for a while. I really needed the money. I stayed up all night. And the next one I decided not to do it. It's a good thing I did. I didn't do it because the next day, all of them got busted. Or something tells us. The, so that's how Sea of Darkness starts, right? I remember filming that story, and I was. My son was already working with me, and Rob Taylor, the editor, and we. It was the. What made that movie happen was they just invented Final Draft. Right? It was the first year of the final... Before that I used to
2: cut everything on film.
0: Yeah. It was insane to be able to have your cameras and your editing everything on a boat with you in the middle of fucking, you
2: know... Yeah, just cutting shit.
0: In the Sumbawa straits. I mean, it wasn't like happening until at that time. And I remember we cut that first sequence together. And, and I said, let's get uh, Jimi Hendrix playing All Along the Watchtower, right? And we cut Martin saying, and we put on All Along the Watchtower. And I said, turn around to watch and, and I said and to Rob, and I said, dude, I've got a great movie here. Yeah. I knew straight away. And never in a million years thought it would be such a nightmare to get it released.
1: So then what happened? So you carried on, you made this film, you've interviewed everyone from Bob McKnight, all these original founders. Everybody, were,
0: everybody was hanging out in Indo. It was Martin's birthday. So, Mark Warren was there, everybody, you know, yep. surfed with all the boys. And uh, then I got a call from Peter McCabe.
2: Yeah, said,
0: I hear you're doing, he wasn't really that friendly with Martin, right? He said, I hear you, 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 you've been doing interviews about Mike Boyan. Because I'd already, you know, remember, Martin wanted me to make a movie about Martin Daly and the Indies trader and the exploration, all that right. stuff. right. But I had in the back of my mind these stories that I'd heard from Rick Rasmussen. Back in the seventies, yeah. and and I remembered you know Gavin Rudolph. Every South African servant knew that story. And then Clive Barber. I was connecting all the dots. And Martin always said to me that I would have made a good detective. That I put together. Well, I
2: think every documentary filmmaker is. is what it's that's, about? Yeah, 100%. It's like that
0: Durst story. You remember the guy, the, the guy Durst. The yes, the, the yes. Jinx, right? Yes, they, that he gets convicted of murder based on these documentary filmmakers. Piecing together what the cops couldn't piece well, together.
1: You're seeing it more and more on all these Netflix specials. There's this woman the other day that pieced this together, and she was just forming herself through it. And now that that case is back. And my wife said they call them murderinos. She's obsessed with these murder podcasts and these the true Tiger stories, King right? But like that story, yeah. yeah Carol Baskin, whatever
0: yeah, her name is. Yeah. yeah. So, but we did this was a long time ago when we did this movie. That was 2010. Was when I released it. Um, as soon as we finished the movie. I showed it to Trevor Groth, who was the head of Sundance Film Festival at that point in time. And Trevor said, listen, we want this movie. And then he said to me, you know, Dennis Hopper is dying of pancreatic cancer, and he has this film festival called Cinevegas. I'll show you the picture just now, me and Dennis. And it's his last year, he's not going to make it. It's the last year, and he's so into drugs and all this stuff. Right, right? and surfing. And and exactly, and the, yeah. it's Red and we would love to open the festival with your film. And I said, fucking great. You yeah. know, everything's going to work out. I knew it was going to be good. And uh, Martin and all the Quicksilver guys, they had been in and out of the editing room over the time of the editing. But they never, you know, it's a whole different experience. Yeah, you, <laughs> you see, see the, the whole film thing. You film on a giant film yeah. screen in a magnificent Vegas And how many in, people would in such implicate? <laughs> with <laughs> a thousand yeah. people there and, yeah. f- you know, 5.1 Dolby surround sound. And suddenly their heads are on the screen. So even though I had, like, releases, permission from, the only person who refused to be filmed was Jerry Lopez. He's straight up, and he's a smart guy. He straight up said to me, listen, Mike Boyen was a dear brother, and I don't want to have... Be involved in a movie that has anything negative to say about Mike. So I said, Well, if it's negative. I'm just telling the story, you know. But he did send his, his close friend, John Millius, who, so Milius is in the movie, you know, Milius is almost yeah. the narrator of the movie, yeah. right? Um, that's how I hooked up with Milius. And Milius' main job was to make sure that I didn't disparage Jerry Lopez in the film, which I didn't, you know. Uh, Milius says, Well, uh, uh, these guys, Mike Boyam and all those guys were like travel agents for Jerry to make sure that he could get good surf at G-Land. That's land right. That's how, and, you know, claimed Jerry had no involvement in any of this stuff. So, fine, whatever. So, I, you know, i was trying to respect what people were telling me. I'm of not course. trying to make a movie and put people in jail. See, that's the difference between me and the murderinos,
1: mm. right? I'm not trying to make documents. But these guys are also just like surfers that were trying to, yeah. Get, they should go in and continue their love for surfing Then weren't like killing people
0: no I was you we know, were all doing drugs, the same yeah. thing come on I mean every every surfer in 1972 dealt drugs I mean if you didn't how did you get from point A to point B I mean that's how did you I know, get you'd to you have to
2: have a job if you didn't do that exactly how, <laughs> how did I get to
0: hang out with Wayne Lynch and you know the interrupters Gerald Ned Young because I had a shitload of Durban poison that I was yeah. prepared to unleash on people you know so the so film
2: so you get you so see you're you're the headliner at the film festival
0: gets great reviews <laughs> the crowd goes wild and I look around and I'm seeing Martin and he's like sitting in his chair and he looks like someone's like pulled like put a pin in a, in, a, in, a, in, one of those like inflatable swimming pool <laughs> <Just deflated. laughs> he's oh, like no. looking at me and there's steam coming And I said, Martin, we're famous, dude. This is... And and I said, Martin, you've watched every edit of this film. Nowhere does it say you're dealing drugs. So he was kind of half into it. But then he hears from Bruce Raymond what Quicksilver thinks about it. And then Jerry Lopez chimes in, right, from... This is all third-hand what they're hearing about it because it's getting reviewed. Right. And there's a shitstorm. And then... Video action sports, the guys that um, became Red Bull, basically. Um, anyway, they have meetings with Martin and I. Um, Sonny Garcia saw the film at a festival. He had already arranged to meet me. He was like, he saw this film and He said, you're doing my movie. Yeah. But <laughs> right, straight away, he said, I wanted to movie with you. So that was already starting to happen, right? And we had a big meeting at the Chateau Marmont. And these guys often, by then, Martin... When Martin and all the Quicksilver guys saw the movie and they knew that it was actually like not like any surf movie they'd seen before. It wasn't like a Jack McCoy movie with lots of you know, jokey surf sequences and you know, on running around on a beach and in like pith helmets and, you know, lots of footage of people surfing. It was old story. Yeah. And by then, I'd met Jeff Chitty, who, through Peter McCabe, who was Boyam's main smuggling partner, who'd just come out of 15 years in prison in Bogaro in Australia, who was the gnarliest person I ever met in my life. You know, he's, he looked like an, a retired MMA fighter with his ears, with, like, cauliflower ears, and his nose all smashed in. And even though he was tall and handsome, and every woman who's seen Sea of Darkness falls in love with that guy. Right? So there was... You know, I I, I put together all these gnarly elements, and the the vast the video action sports people. So Martin had seen the movie. He said to Jerry, "And don't worry, I'm going to take care of this. My investors." they just wanted their money back. It was they were they were you know, it was like um, franchise films. They were doing huge movies. Yeah, they knew
1: they, this they're going to make them rich, but they wanted to support you because you just made. Yeah, money so so they so so, film.
0: so Martin said they they had about two hundred fifty thousand dollars, in the Martin said, "I'll give you three hundred thousand dollars." I don't know where he got the money from, but he wanted to buy them out. Right?
1: Well, I'm sure it came from Bob and those guys. I'm sure it came from Puxet I don't know where it fucking ball, came you know. from,
0: but we but the deal I made was the Martin that I retained fifty percent ownership of the remake rights of this film, so it couldn't be changed. You couldn't do anything to this film,
2: right? Yeah, because copyright, yeah.
0: It's, well, it's 50-50, it yeah. was you know. And, and then the, his group, whoever bought the film with him, they owned 75% of the revenue stream, I own 25%, right, of the film. So Video Action Sports wanted to offer us 250,000 or something upfront Dude, that would have gone a long way for me first of all to start getting some of my twenty-five percent. Yeah. It was a good deal. Martin says, Oh, if these guys are offering us two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, someone else is gonna offer us five hundred. I said, Martin, this is the movie business. We're not buying boats here. Like let's just take I said it's such a lot of money to get up front for a documentary, especially in surprise. Especially back then
1: too. Oh I mean, yeah. it's not like the last five years where documentaries have exploded. And even so, you it, still yeah. go,
0: you still going to have to try very hard to get $250,000 up front for a documentary, let me tell you. Yeah. So, um, he, ref- he, he absolutely point blank refused. And then I went, oh, shit, I've got a problem here. You know, I knew I had a problem. And the film went on to win film festivals all over the world. And not just surfing film festivals. It was in, at that time, Sundance had an action
1: sports division called x dance that yep. was people talk about it as if it was like a film that came out and they'd all seen it and won. Yeah. yeah all the awards are won but no one's actually seen it well there are a lot of people That's so well, if you look at my mantelpiece
0: there you'll see the rows of awards from from it. other films but a lot from sea of darkness it really it really kick-started a whole different career for me you know not just surf movies but it was like i made a movie that i love right i've mean, been making steven seagal action movies right and, you know Val Kilmer movies and suddenly I was making something I really loved I was passionate about that was my whole secret life I mean I used to finish a Seagal movie in Bulgaria and I'd fucking fly to Hawaii and go surf yeah it's, I mean I've always you know And then when I hooked up with Diana Diana you know has like been a manager at American Airlines for you know 20 years, right? So, <laughs> it was the perfect girlfriend for me. Yeah. That's why I don't want to upset her. Yeah, that's why we're out dude, here. <laughs> we, we, we could be going to Hawaii, right? If, if okay. there wasn't COVID, I, I, every swell I'm on, you know.
2: Yeah. So <laughs> was, was the reason that everybody got so paranoid that did it implicate like Quicksilver specifically, or was it just it implicated a certain amount of people or a certain amount of like one character or the other, or was it just everybody in the film is dirty?
0: No, I don't think it implicated anybody. I think right. it was inference. The okay. only person who overtly admits to drug dealing in the film in the film is Mike Boyham, okay. who's dead. Right. So there's not much to implicate there. And, you know, even his brother Bill Boyham in his memoir of Mike Boyum talks pretty openly about what he did. Peter McCabe, who went to prison speaks very openly. He's not hiding any of his past. He, no. He's a terrific guy. Peter McCabe is one of the most beautiful guys yeah, I've ever I spent a lot of
2: time with him in Bali my first I love trip him in Peter. the early I 90s. Have a sweet guy. M-
0: my first modern forefin is still in the shape of yeah. Peter McCabe with the bear claw, yeah. tiger claw. Uh, incredible shaper. I love Peter McCabe. Yeah,
2: we had no idea who the dude was. He didn't even look like a surfer. He just no, looked like yeah, some little, little like you know, little teddy bear kind of dude. And boy he, just, he rips. We went surfing with him and it was just, oh, you're that guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so Peter McCabe was fully open. Right. Uh, Jeff Chitty, who Peter hooked me up with, who was who had been Martin's boyhood friend, right, and that was the connection between Martin and all these guys. Was Chitty and Martin had grown up together. They'd worked on the boat together, and then Chitty became Mike Boyham's <laughs> right-hand smuggling guy, and he'd done fifteen years in Bogoro, a lot of them in solitary confinement in the gnarliest prison in Australia, right, which is like. <laughs> Yeah, he's dead now. He I mean, he didn't last like maybe 2 years out of, out of out of um out of prison and he was dead. He just drank himself to death. He was so fucked up when I met him. But he's still very captivating in the film. Um So, you know, those guys were open about it. I don't ever say that Martin Dale was dealing drugs. I don't ever say bob mcknight was dealing drugs i don't they they openly talked about their relationship with mike boyam and he, i think it's just inference
2: yeah
0: It you've got to see the movie so the next thing we'll have to do is arrange a screening because i do have the movie. i just can't do it now because i've got to go have a huge uh, fucking conference call with uh with the zoom meeting with the guys from homeland you know tv show one
1: of my favorite tv shows there, there is. is
0: good watch this space
1: yeah <laughs> Well, do, Rachel. <laughs> why, don't we, why don't we do this as a two piece, a bit of a two be continue? Yeah, because yeah and i no, think I'll it for you. Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about too. I really want to talk to you a lot about like the WSL. You know, they, they've obviously hired Eric Logan, and I know just how passionate you are about competitive surfing. Uh, but like, you know, they've hired Eric Logan to come on and be a storyteller and look for those stories. Where are those stories in surf? What, what advice you would have for young filmmakers? There's a bunch of questions I have on that side because I've got so many young people that listen to this that are into documentary filmmaking or have seen your work and whether it's the Nathan film or heard about this. So I think we should definitely do a To be TBC. Eric was very cool with me. When he saw the Nathan film, he invited me in there.
0: They gave me a really big plug for Nathan and I when oh. they did the thing. They had me and Nathan come in on the, in the office. Well, I think Nathan was on Skype and I was in the office. and They were very supportive, I think. But I do think they're corporate and they're, my subject matter might be a little
1: too heavy for them. Yeah, but for me to save surf, because surf obviously needs a huge push right now. There's all the elements for it to be the once great sport it was, but it needs these stories. It needs to, where it started, it was about like babes and doobies on the beach hanging out, that camaraderie. It wasn't so much about the high performance and who surfed the best. That was always cool and it was innovative in a sense, but now there's just such great stories and everyone's afraid to tell them. Yeah, it was more about the act like, itself. The fact that the movie got squashed, it's, it's such an incredible and polarizing story on the initial start of the surf industry and traveling and being a surfer and what it entails to care about in the trailer, it's modern day describing, you know, it's like surfing is a drug. And there's this need for an after a time, you, you start craving it and that's, that's all it was fueling And It's kind of pure in a sense, right? It is, it's exactly that.
0: I think, listen, I've nev- I will never stop trying to get that movie put out there, right? I mean, I don't, I'm not someone who rests a, on my laurels. What be a feature film? I, there's a few things happening. Okay. Let me go do this call. Yeah, it's yeah, big, go do the call. It's very fortuitous, all these timings. Sure. But um, I have to go do it. But I would, you know, I'd love to continue. I'm going nowhere. I'm just sitting here in
2: isolation. Coming into love and release, Bringing in a couple of keys. Don't touch my bags if you please.
1: Mr. Customs man.
2: So hopefully, like us, you're sufficiently tantalized now after hearing a bit of, especially toward the end there, where Michael really gets into what could be the more controversial pieces of this film.
1: Yeah, there's so much to unpack And one of the cool things that we're going to do before we, before you hear this next episode is we're going to go watch it with Michael. So we're gonna to get to watch it, and we'll kind of report on it from our opinion when we interview him next. Like play by
2: play, and yeah. don't think. And
1: I might even pirate it and just record it on my iPhone and I was, release it to the public. I was just
2: gonna say there are gonna be two two views of that, so we'll have to toggle back and forth between those two. Anyway, um, hopefully we get Michael soon on this the second piece, and um, you all can hear and and you know look out for that pirated video. alright see you soon.